Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Chris Burns. How you doing? I'm doing good. Sunshine. It's a nice day. We're going to have a little bit of fun here on the Playground Podcast. We are talking with Chris Down, who is the Chief Design Officer for Mattel. And I've known Chris a very long time. Richard, you're just meeting him sort of officially here. And Chris, well, welcome. Let's let's start with welcoming you. And tell us a little bit about how you got to where you got almost 16 years at Mattel. Tell us a little bit about your career path first. Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, thank you for having me on on the show. This is, uh, this is awesome. I love talking toys and uh, I love talking toys even more with people that I know I'm going to walk away having learned a few things. I mean, toy industry veterans and experts. Um, this is going to be a great conversation. Thank you so much for, for having me on. I grew up in a creative household and and that kind of got me interested in, in all things creative. My dad was, was not a toy guy, but he was very interested in toys. And I was a child of the seventies. Um, grew up playing with some pretty cool toys. I mean, some of my favorites were like Big Track, if you remember that one. I think it was a Milton Bradley toy back in the day, Starbird. My dad was into these like electronic toys. So it was always there. But I grew up and went to school for industrial design because my dad was an industrial designer. But it was like serious industrial design. It's either we're going to go into automotive. I grew up in Michigan. So it was like the big three. My dad did work with, with GM. He had a boat manufacturing company. I mean, it was like hardcore industrial design. Never once thought about toys. I didn't know it was an industry. I was a consumer, but I didn't know it was an industry. So, you know, go figure. I don't, I don't know how that happened. But anyway, I discovered it uh, in, in 92 when I, I took an internship at Parker Brothers. And the only way I found out about Parker Brothers is an alum from my university posted on the board, ever want to be a toy designer. Wow. I mean, can it, seriously, can anybody actually deny that? Drawing you in. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) It was a guy, I don't don't know if you know Jim Kiefer, he's still in the industry um, uh, as, as an inventor, but he was, he was, he was one of the uh, design leads at Parker Brothers at the time. And this is like the Bob Wan era, Jim Tingley, Alan Hassenfeld, of course, was still CEO at, at, at Hasbro. Parker Parker was part of the Hasbro Games Group uh, fairly early on at that point. But anyway, I went out there and interviewed. Well, I sent my slides, sent my slides, you know, those, those slides. I remember those. Axed my resume. And, uh, and, and, and just, you know, to make a long story short, that hooked me. I went out for an interview and immediately shifted trajectories from what I was going to do, heavy electronics and automotive to like toys and games is, is where it's at for me. And I did my internship in 92 at Parker Brothers and, and kind of continued on with Parker Brothers after I graduated as a designer, a toy designer, and uh, stayed in the industry, followed with Hasbro into their interactive era. Uh, you, you remember that in the, the kind of mid to late 90s into the early 2000s, Tom Dusenberry Hasbro Interactive. And so I, I shifted into that industry, stayed in that for a good fair number of years um, with Tom all, all over the world. It was, it was in the UK at Hasbro headquarters in Stockley Park for three and a half years and uh, then ultimately made my way uh, out, out to the West Coast and started my own gig doing mobile gaming pre-iPhone, which I'm not even going to get into. <laughs> I'll tell you what, the, the beauty, the best thing that came out of doing that, and, and that was in the early 2000s. First, historic being part of the dot bomb, but, but doing my own gig 
And working in that space made me really miss and therefore appreciate toys, physical toys, hands-on toys. Everybody understands toys. Don't have to go to a weird app store uh, toys. And so that actually attracted me back to an opportunity 16 years ago to come to, to Mattel. So that, that's kind of, that's the short, maybe it was a long, long version. No, no, it's great. And, and I know you initially, I guess, with Hot Wheels, right? That's where I would have, mm-hmm. we would have first met. Talk a little bit about your progress through Mattel. Yeah, when I came to Mattel, I, I came into the conventional kind of toy design group. I was in the vehicles group as a design leader for, for one of their new brands at the time. It was 04. They had won the Pixar, the Disney license, and uh, they need somebody need somebody to run it. So it was kind of a, a patchwork quilt of designers from the Matchbox team and from the Hot Wheels team and from the entertainment team. And so I came in to, uh, to kind of pull it together and execute on the, the, the business that they had won. And that was a great entry into, uh, in, in, into Mattel and into kind of back, a re-entry back into toys. A few years later, after doing a tour in consumer products and packaging and, and other design groups, the company kind of oriented toward focusing on its biggest kind of billion dollar-ish brands. So if you think of Barbie and you think of uh, Fisher Price, you think of Hot Wheels as these big kind of monolithic brands, they established general management in those, which was a combination. It was a time that, that they pulled together design, marketing, um, packaging kind of into one house and had it led in a, in a general management sort of way. So probably about 2014, um, that shift happened and I drew the long straw. I got so lucky. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> a passion I've always had was for Hot Wheels. I was a Hot Wheels kid growing up and to be able to step into a general management position that really exercised both my, my creative skills that, that, that I had honed over years, but, but also kind of tacking on an important, significant business aspect to it as a general manager did that for about five years, uh, almost five years, four years and 10 months. Awesome time. And yes, Chris, we pulled you in as one of the, the uh, external experts to help us with some of our more innovative initiatives. Hot Wheels ID was a big one. And of course, worked with you along the way, just looking at our lines um, seasonally. But, uh, but yeah, that was a great, great stepping stone for me. I learned a lot. Um, the business was, was a wonderful one to be involved with. And, uh, I still have heart for it and I still have a piece of it, uh, sitting, sitting now with the creative and product development piece of it, but kind of a broader range. Hey, Chris, uh, you know, I'm thinking back to what you told us about your, your beginnings and that you uh, grew up in Michigan, uh, automobile, country. And there used to be on the Ford website, and I'm not sure if it's still there, um, a statement that they really valued toy Ford cars because that was a child's first introduction to the brand. When I was a kid, your dad was a Ford guy or a Chrysler or whatever. It's kind of gone away. So is there a role that needs to be played by toys in assisting automobile companies in connecting? at an early age? It's a really interesting and insightful question. I think that while uh, consumers and culture has changed and the value of the automobile looks very different today than it did, say, 30 or 40 or 50 years ago, the value of 
toy automobiles or vehicles in play. And I would say anything, I mean, the, the, the one universal truth is ages and stages dictate that we are as, as, as young children going to play with, with things, whether it's sticks or stones or toy vehicles or dolls or, or, or whatnot. Um, the attraction to vehicles we know is, is one that is, is, is almost inherited. It's part of how kids grow up and they're attracted to it. As you rightly say, Richard, before they understand the value of brand or before they can even identify brand. And the interesting thing is that as a play object, yes, it's it's part of development and it's something that, that kids will um, will generally love. That's why even with advancements in technology and changes in culture, that, that those kind of fundamental toy categories that the toy industry is built of continue to succeed because you've got new generations coming in that just want to play. Interestingly, you know, we work with all of the auto manufacturers out there and without exception... Every design lead or or person from the OEMs that I've had conversations with, you get into it. Oh, oh, here's here's the role that I have. Here's what, and they can be in marketing, they can be in product development for for the for the big three or or whomever. They talk about how toys played a role in getting them into the industry. And if that wasn't it, which which that is a very common um, response that I get or or a story that I hear. Uh, if you walk through the Ford Studio or the GM Studio. It is without question, I will put money on it right now. Um, you'll see Hot Wheels cars on the desks of those designers because it's almost like a muse. It's like these are big kids that continue to play and continue to be inspired by kind of the fantastical designs that they see in some cases that are not possible or may just be inspiration for what the next generation of real cars may be. So there's, there's a correlation, there's a connection at a root play level as well as at an adult resonance level. Are toy cars any kind of a leading indicator for what's going to happen with toy sales? Uh, does it tell us anything about what brands are going to be popular in maybe 10, 15 years? Has anybody ever researched that? Well, I can tell you anecdotally, we, we haven't researched anything about that in terms of if toy cars are really spiking and it's like Ford cars or Tesla cars are, are really spiking, that that has an indicator on something broader than just toys, like what's going to happen in the real industry. I will say this though, anecdotally, we did, and it was it was years ago. It was uh, it was kind of in the 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 first round of the Tesla Model S. We did a Father's Day event at the design headquarters, and it was like a couple of pieces of chewing gum and just a great idea. And it's like we're making a we're making a one sixty four scale toy car out of this Tesla Model S. We're going to get Tesla, who's just down the street, to come in and, and bring their car. So we have the life size. It turned into like 900 million, million media impressions, which is crazy. I mean, that's Toy Fair level excitement by consumers and by the media picking things up. That was clearly a resonance moment around a brand that at that time was quite small. And now, I mean, look at it, over $2,000 stock price. I mean, it's like, you know, so, so <laughs> to your question, my, anic my anecdotal story around Tesla certainly suggests that where there's resonance with toy, there may be greater popularity in that case for a license. And you oversee now more than just Hot Wheels. You oversee Barbie. Do all roads lead to Chris Down when it comes to design? Well, at, a, at a company like Mattel, it's a very matrixed organization. <laughs> thousands of we do thousands of toys every every single year. Um, all roads definitely don't lead to Chris Down. Um, <laughs> thank goodness. Thank goodness. Because if the pandemic didn't kill me, that would. But in terms of the role that I stepped into, it's it's almost a couple of years ago now, um, as uh, as chief design officer. Really, there there were a couple of 
reasons behind that that were very business motivated. I mean, it had less to do with me and, and, and more about the opportunity that a complicated company like Mattel, who has various houses underneath the Mattel umbrella, and it's, you know, American Girl and Fisher Price and, and Mega Blocks and Barbie and Hot Wheels and Polly Pocket and you name it. I mean, uh, a, a host of products, brands and categories that Mattel represents, all that have amazing talent and capabilities within them, but all kind of separated. And it was it was separated by category and it was also separated by, by function. So this became really a moment to create alignment across the categories and across the makers. So design, packaging, product development, model shops, engine, you know, engineering, electronic sound, chem lab, like the whole thing in order to leverage Mattel's scale. So there are amazing things that happen every day in virtually every facet of, of Mattel. Being able to harness those and at a minimum create visibility. So if, if somebody is doing something incredible around VR or AR over at Fisher Price, you couldn't get arrested knowing that in, in Madison, Wisconsin or, or in El Segundo, California, because it's happening there. This creates the opportunity for visibility. And then in some cases, in many cases, uh, the opportunity to build institutional norms around how the organization is and how the organization operates. Those were kind of the, I would say, pragmatic functional reasons. The other is more strategic and feels a little bit like buzzwords. We've heard about design-led and design-led companies and the value of design-led uh companies and, and and processes as a business strategy, not just a function. And that was probably the underlying objective um, that was behind all of this. I mean, if, and I've, I've heard you guys speak, like giving focus to the toy and giving focus to the consumer is what it's all about. And if you look at Mattel, it, we, we do that, but again, it's in pockets and it's not, it's not leveraging its scale, but amplifying, amplifying the voice of the consumer making sure that, that toy makers are focused on the right things. There's no question that the most important sustainable position that we have is one where we are understanding consumers' needs today, predicting consumers' needs to the future, and delivering product and product experiences that satisfy what those needs are. A P&L is a P&L, and it's a bunch of numbers. Nobody takes margin to the bank. What they're taking, uh, what they're taking to the bank, is the yield off of creating inspiring and exciting consumer experiences, and that's what builds builds brands as well. So, toys are king, and kids are the boss is kind of the mantra that, um, as a design led organization, that Mattel is, I would say, reorienting as a whole. To it never went away, but it's gotten lost at various points in various places. I would agree. I would agree as an outside observer, and it's, it's, it's wonderful to hear. You kind of teed up my next question. Early on in the pandemic, we had a wonderful conversation with Steve Totsky. He was just great. And we are several more months into the coronavirus pandemic. What impact is that having on Mattel right now, If you, especially from a product development, how do we get this into the market kind of situation? Uh, can you give us a little bit of an overview of that? Yeah, Chris, I mean... It's a very popular question. And ah, I know it's, of course it is. <laughs> yeah, of course. So I, I'll, I'll try not to tread too much on, on on things that are common to everybody, like the disruption of supply chain, product development and marketing and sales, and like the way we engage consumers and everything else. I, I kind of look at it in a couple of different buckets. I mean, one is um, 
clearly what we're making, <laughs> you know, like what our plans for, for late 21 and, 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 and 22, which we're in 20 uh, spring 22 product development cycle right now have definitely been impacted because of what we have learned about consumers today. And because of our belief in the sustained reposition and reorientation that consumers have as we move forward. The second is, is a lot more kind of tactical and it's in front of us and we've been forced into it because we're working out of our homes, which is the processes and the how that we make toys. I'll hit on that one first, because in, in some ways, um, both are a tale of two cities. I mean, the, the, there's frustration and gnashing of teeth and, and uh, compromises that we have to make because of both, uh, both, both situations in terms of what we make and how we make them. But then there are also some really neat lights at the end of the tunnel or things that have, have emerged out of the pandemic. In terms of how we work, nobody would have expected that we'd be able to go through now. Um, we're going into our second toy fair. I can't even believe that. I mean, right. we're, we're it's away. Um, we've gone through our internal sales uh, processes, um, now full kind of full seasonal cycles. We're doing key product development milestones and, and making it through. We're even doing kind of our global product development milestones that in some ways are better than they ever were. And part of the reason in that a lot of these engagements, whether it's with our internal teams or with our external customers are better is because we're able to include more people and because there's a bit more of a democratic uh, way of actually operating in these meetings. And I'll give you an example. We do these things called management approvals and we're sitting around and we're periodically getting together at key milestones and, and looking at toys. I mean, we look at toys all day long. On the bad side of it, the tough side of it, we're used to sitting in a room, touching and feeling and playing with toys at every stage of development. And that is, it's tragic to let go of that because not only is it what we're accustomed to, it's what give us as toy makers energy. We love to play with toys and the social aspect. We love to play with each other. Yeah. And so those are, those are, are really bummer things that I, without sugarcoating it, like not doing it is a drag on everyone. Now on the other, on the other side, the democratization of the process in something like a management approval is everyone, not just the people sitting at the front table, but everyone in the room, which now can be a bigger room, it doesn't have to be 25 people, it can be 55 people, it doesn't have to be people sitting in El Segundo or Madison or East Aurora, it can be people sitting around the globe looking at exactly the same thing, hearing exactly the same thing, and being able to comment in a way that equalizes voice. So what we're seeing is emerging talent and voice and benefit from having that broader, um, broader range of people at key stages and a more efficient way of talking about product and product process in the product development process. So how we make toys is, I would say, in some cases, streamlined. And we certainly haven't missed a beat in terms of have our milestones slipped or I mean, like we've continued to progress, not as if nothing has happened, but in a different way and in some cases better. The other thing that it's really opened our eyes to is new tools. I mean, for, for, for your listeners out there that make toys or anything else, I'll tell you, there, there are a couple of things and I'll bring them up very specifically. We were already working on digital 3D development. This has accelerated the plans around how quickly we're implementing digital 3D development, um, which helps at an early stage as well as helps at a, a late stage, even through to e-com. 
but using tools like Microsoft's HoloLens for, for augmented reality kind of product development. So we're seeing the same thing in, uh, in our, our, our Hong Kong or our Shenzhen offices. We are in our North American offices um, and, uh, and even things like Oculus Quest. I mean, you know, for, for a few hundred bucks, less than a gaming console, you can have now a virtual environment where you're working. And we're working with a company called Spatial IO, where you, we can have these project rooms and actually work on, on, on product development together um, in a virtual room where we can uh, address, annotate, and, and work on three-dimensional geometry. So it's incredible. And we also have like new brainstorming tools and stuff like that. Miro is one that we use. Um, and it's a collaboration tool where you can do everything from whiteboarding to sticky noting and, and all of the things that you kind of miss face-to-face in a conference room. One of the most exciting things that I saw at Fisher-Price was a use of virtual reality where you could put on the headset and be the size of the child interacting with the Imaginex. And that that's a couple of years ago now. And I've been talking about that for a couple of years because that is such a, a wonderful way of designing. It really is. I mean, you know, John Chrisman, who who leads that team out there, um, and, and I know exactly the demo that you're probably thinking of from a few years back is now much more kind of proliferated through Mattel. Awesome. Um, and it, it is incredible. You can see it at a little people scale, and then you can you can blow it up and you can go in there as if you are a little people walking in, in, <laughs> into this Barbie dream house. Or, I mean, it, like, it is r- remarkable. It's, it's like magic. It's It's like magic. And we're going to take a quick break right there to bring you a word from one of our supporters, Kid Stuff Public Relations. This is the Playground Podcast, and we'll be right back. The Playground Podcast is brought to you in part by Kid Stuff Public Relations, and we've got some PR insights from Lisa Orman. We're talking a little bit about why play matters. During these times that we're facing, we found that play and quality play things do matter more than ever. It's really quite a privilege to work in an industry that offers that to children. And you can hear my entire conversation on this topic with Lisa at KidStuffPR.com and check out what KidStuff might be able to do for your products. And we're back. This is the Playground Podcast. I'm Chris Byrne with my co-host Richard Gottlieb, and you're listening to our conversation with Chris Down, Chief Design Officer for Mattel. Chris, um... Chris Byrne and I have talked frequently about the fact that we've, we, we are not crazy about these new digital trade shows that have been taking place. Not any fault of the people who are putting them on. They, they're, they're doing phenomenal work. It's just there's something very lacking in terms of, I like to call it the soul of being there. And what you're describing sounds like they could be utilized to make trade shows and other kind of distant experiences a lot more personal and engaging. Uh, do you have any opinions on, on the whole concept of where we are with the art of not just the science of the technology, but the art of the technology and how to use it? Um, I mean, Richard, what you're bringing up, you know, I talked about it in a product development sense, that in a trade show sense, I mean, the very thing that inspires us and energizes us about being in the same room and, and talking and handling toys is the same thing that we're, we're missing uh, as trade shows start to shift gears and go virtual. The human interaction can't be replaced. I mean, even if you throw on a, a, you know, an Oculus Quest and, and do it in a virtual setting, I think that that is better than um, some of the trade show or remote review sessions that, that I've seen because it is more interactive and that's what we crave and that's what we need in order to be inspired and sometimes even sold on a product idea, but you know, nothing's going to replace the face-to-face. What I will say is 
some of the, the, the ones that I know we have recognized as being the most challenging, whether it's a trade show or whether it's a, a, a sales pitch to a customer, is the ones that work, the ones that I personally enjoy the least are the ones that feel as if it was pre-recorded sometime before and you're just kind of watching it, whether it's live or not. No interaction. The ones that are much better are even just the ones that open up a dialogue, not just a monologue. Even if it's a little bit clunky, even if it's people hitting a, a raise hand button in Zoom and asking a question, a moderator reads the question because of the scale of the audience, those feel like you're dealing with a live audience and it's a, it feels more like a dialogue. And I think that anything we can do for trade shows or, or any kinds of these large scale engagements that can feel more like a dialogue and have true live human engagement is better. Not the most efficient all the time, but I think more effective over time. And it's, and, 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 and it is interesting. I mean, we just got out of San Diego Comic-Con that I mentioned, San Diego Comic-Con at home, which we did not know what to expect. And it, we were running panels and doing all kinds of stuff. Uh, did you dress up? I didn't. And, and I, but now that I feel a little more like I can, I can triangulate with it. I'm going to like cosplay. Here we go. Let's go. I, I would have, I would have vac formed a full size bassinet and dressed up as the child baby Yoda for, for this one, just so you know where my head was at, but I didn't do it. I should have. Okay. Meanwhile, um, you, I'm sorry. I interrupted you. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's perfect. I mean, San Diego, I mean, I miss, I miss that the crazy of San Diego comic-con, but you know, one of the areas that we just weren't sure about because it, it hasn't happened like this in the past is we always do an assortment of really incredible toy and package, you know, packaged toy offerings for comic-con across action figures, vehicles, um, you name it, uh, really reflecting pop culture and everything else. Normally the Mattel booth, um, you've, you've both been to comic-con it's like, lines out the door. We sell out every day and, and you can predict it. We didn't know what to predict this time. Everything we made sold out in eight minutes, every Mattel toy. <laughs> so we're like, Oh boy, we probably didn't aspire where we should have um, on, on this one, but, but it just shows, I mean, people, people are out there and they're going to engage, whether it's a live trade show or whether it's virtual, I think people want to get their fix and they want to play other areas. You'd asked about what about, other areas that have been impacted, you know, I look at uh, American Girl, which has retail store footprint that is massive. Uh, and it's it's our biggest kind of direct retail engagement that we have with consumers. It's also our biggest e-com direct to consumer engagement that we have. Stores, of course, have been shut down uh, ar around America, but the gap plus some has been filled by e-com. So it's, you know, consumers are, are, are really flexible. The Hot Wheels Legends tour. I don't know if either of you uh, attended any of them, but that's a live tour that, that goes around the country. And we've now, we're in our third year of it. And this is the first year. The, the first event was in Miami and it was pre-pandemic. The rest of them have been virtual. And, uh, and the virtual events are doing just as well as the, the, the live events. People are coming and showing their cars. One is getting selected and, and is going to get turned into a Hot Wheels car. So it, it's, it's amazing how adaptable people are. But Richard, to your original question, if we make these things not just engaging because the content is excellent, but engaging because it's a dialogue, not a monologue, I think that's part of the magic. I just want to stay with you on Comic-Con for one minute. When I was there, what I noticed was the tribal quality of the Comic-Con's community, that, that those folks who really embrace these uh, movies and toys, etc. Do you think that we as an industry fully understand the tribal quality of the adult toy fan 
when they dress up, they're really flagging their community. They're letting everybody know which tribe they're in. I think that generally speaking, we understand it. Is there more to learn? There's no question. I think that that one of the things that you're provoking, though, is how powerful that is. It's human nature. We're, we're tribal by nature. And by the way, not, not to take the conversation uh, in, in this way, but I mean, you know, the whole national crisis around inclusion and diversity, I think that, that it speaks to some of the human tensions around the tribal nature. Sometimes it can be bad. And sometimes it can be good and it can be powerful. As a toy industry, um, certainly from, from a Mattel perspective, I think that we look at some of the areas that have been most consistently active and have, have highly developed tribes within them. Hot Wheels, Chris Byrne, you know this. Hot Wheels is one that has a, an incredible tribe that starts maybe at age four or five and, and is more kind of um, instinctive uh, in, in nature in terms of playing with vehicles. And by the time you're you're 14 or 15, or better yet, 40 or 50, <laughs> it becomes hot and a, a significant gravitational force in terms of what that tribe represents, what I represent within it. I collect pony cars, I collect muscle cars, I collect exotics, I do this, I do that. I'm going to the the, the national or the international convention every year. I'm selling, um, selling what I have and seeking what I don't. I mean, it is serious. And you can say the same with Barbie collector. You can say the same. American Girl has a collector audience. Collectors is another word uh, for for really um, illustrating the human nature of these tribes, Richard, that you're you're talking about, and they are powerful. And by the way, when we talk about tribes and, and communities, I think that the pandemic has also inspired uh, other communities. I mean, if you if you think of the contingent of parents that are out there that are dealing with common problems that are bringing them together as a community, not just having to work from home, but also having to educate from home and remote learning. My two little girls, seven and nine, started remote learning uh, yesterday into the, the, the next school year and something that we didn't think we would have to do with and talk about an empathic connection with other parents that are going through the same oh, sure. thing. Oh, wow. I'd I just like to sh- share one thing. You mentioned the tribes at Comic-Con. And I just want to say what really struck me at Comic-Con was the number of handicapped people that were not just there, but participated and were welcomed. And the fact that all of these tribes, it didn't make any difference what color you were uh, or what you yes. believed in, that you could be a member of the tribe as long as you shared the passion. So, I say that's really good for toys and and good for entertainment. It's a good model for the culture as well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. It is amazing. You know, we as human beings, uh, you get two people uh, at a, at a cocktail party talking that have never met each other, and and quickly you the conversation is almost like rapid fire, trying to throw themes, subjects, topics out where you can connect. And as soon as you have one. Sure. It's, and it could be kids. It could be the toy industry. If you're really lucky, it could be uh, just about anything. But people are very willing to let others in to their tribe when they find that thread. And Richard, it's a really good point. I mean, it it actually breaks down and removes a lot of other things that would generally keep people socially apart when they have that thing. And it could be Game of Thrones. It could be Mario Kart. It could be Hot Wheels. But those are, are powerful tribe building things. Mattel has two of the most iconic brands in the toy industry, Barbie, which is in its 61st year, Hot Wheels, which I guess is what, 53, 52, going on 53. 53. What do you do on a regular basis to keep these brands relevant, especially in 
what is a more crowded industry than it's been for a long time. And there's a there's a lot of people nipping at your heels. I've always thought that Mattel had some of the best research, market research in the industry. But what else do you guys do to to try to stay relevant and on top of what kids are wanting? Because they're the ones who are making the business. Yeah, you're, well, you're exactly right. And that, at, the, at the top of the discussion, we talked about being design led and, and the focus on the kid, the consumer and making sure that we're making the right toys. It's a wonderful question. Actually, marks a significant difference between Mattel and many other toy companies out there. The depth and the relative scale of many of the brands in our portfolio mean that our model is just different. We're not Moose, we're not Spin, we're not Jacks. While we do aspire to create new kind of entries into the marketplace that are that are brand new play patterns and not necessarily aligned to a brand, so a brand new brand launch, you'll see that Mattel's strategy, our stated strategy, and what we put into the marketplace is much more leveraging the power of our existing brands, the consumer audience of our existing brands, but innovating within them. And so you take a 61-year-old uh, brand like Barbie or, or a 53-year-old brand like Hot Wheels, and if you, if you study what's going on under the hood, even though Hot Wheels makes 500 million die-cast cars uh, and sells them for a dollar every year, it is not that that is perpetuating the constant growth that that brand has seen over the last decade. Nor is it the hundreds of millions of dolls, $10 dolls that Barbie makes in, in, in the Fashionistas line. But it's the innovation, the constant push at understanding where are consumers, where are consumers going, and what kinds of innovations and new play patterns and things that align with the sensibilities of the brand, but represent new ways to play or play with those brands as kids and new kids and old kids engage with them. And I'll give you an example. I mean, this year, one of our biggest breakout hits was both an unboxing and a reveal product, Barbie color reveal. It lives inside of the Barbie brand, but it could have lived outside of, outside of the Barbie brand. The scale and the awareness of Barbie as the muse or as the kind of foundational proposition, what it was, in some ways makes it get lost inside of Barbie. It's like, well, Barbie, Barbie's just a doll. Well, no, it's an innovative paint reveal process, not color change, not, not what we've seen around like unboxing and, and following that trend, but a new innovative way to do it. And it turned out to be a, a massive breakout success for us. Another example is Hot Wheels plays in a lot of different places as well. Hot Wheels ID was a swing that didn't have the scale, doesn't have the scale of, of color reveal, but is setting a platform for digital and physical play in a very elegant diecast form factor where you can still play with it the way that you play with it and have for 52 years, but you can also engage with and track your stats and your speed and everything else and share with your friends digitally. So these big brands and leveraging the value of those brands and actually building future and sustainable engagement with consumers is, is the strategy that Mattel has. It goes beyond just toy play, as, as you both know. I mean, content, whether it's Dreamhouse Adventures, which continues to crank on, Princess Adventures, our Dreamhouse Adventures have been killing it on Netflix, our, our app, Barbie Dreamhouse, which is crazy. We, we are a no screen time 
household, which is impossible dur- during this era. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, because you haven't had rioting in your house. Exactly. Yeah, Richard, you're nailing it. Both in terms of like human parent sanity, as well as just like the necessity of, of, of uh, distance learning. You kind of have to break your screen time rules. Well, anyway, one of the side effects of that is my girls discovering the Dreamhouse Adventures app. And it is, I am not kidding. It is the thing along with this, they discovered Minecraft too. The, 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 the <laughs> gravitational pull of Minecraft has been big, but the point is whether it's, whether it's digital engagement, whether it's real life engagement through something like the Hot Wheels Legends store, whether it's content on Netflix or the toy consumers in their tribe or in their interest are consuming and engaging with these brands in a lot of different mediums. And that, that of course, is an important strategy, as I, as, as I mentioned earlier with, with Mattel. Unleashing or unlocking the potential of our brands is one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is stoking the fandom that these tribes have. You said something earlier I, I just wanted to come back to. Something uh, Chris and I have talked about before, and you mentioned how when you were growing up, you never even thought of the toy industry as a career. And do you think we do enough to communicate the fact that this is a career path? No, we're not. We're not doing nearly enough. And it has been an increased topic of conversation at Mattel. And particularly, as you start to look at diversity of the workforce, there are pockets in the world, whether you're talking about uh, cultural diversity, uh, you know, attracting talent from outside of the, the United States, different cultures, um, racial diversity. And it's not just about leadership. It's about creativity and creative and design specifically. I will say say that we're actively shifting the way that we're not just recruiting, which we do recruit from a lot of liberal arts colleges now, not just the big ones that are in the toy industry, like FIT and Otis. And there are universities like Cincinnati or Notre Dame, my alma mater. We're reaching out there and going broader with engaging the universities. But to your point, Richard, it has to start earlier. I want to get into elementary and high school and start talking about like you you get a designer coming into a, a seventh grade class talking about what they do. And I guarantee the room is going to light up <laughs> and you're going to have a high percentage of those kids that now have an indication or maybe an attraction of what a future career might be for them or could be for them. And it just, uh, it shocks me that it never crossed my mind. And I grew up in a creative household. I studied design and it did not cross my mind that it was an industry that I could make a living at. And it is the best industry you can make a living at. (laughs) We need to expand younger and create visibility so that the pipeline of interested kids become interested adults that are graduating from high school or graduating from college and choosing the toy industry to come into. I want to ask you about content. You guys are knocking it out of the park. You've had all the Barbie movies over the years. You've And it's such a change from the days of Ruth Handler, who really believed that Barbie should be a blank slate. How do you see we have changed in kids in relation to content? I still see the same level of creativity, but kids are looking for narrative as a springboard rather than that blank slate. How are you seeing that evolve as kids relate to content? And especially in this short form content environment we're in right now, how are you seeing the relationship of kids to content and how that impacts adoption and sales? It is a fundamental reality. 
Chris, uh, content, whether we're talking about like linear content or short form content as you, uh, as you expressed, or whether we're talking about gaming content or hybrid content, the generation of consumer that we're working with right now and providing toys and engagement with is, I mean, you've heard me talk about generation glass, <laughs> generation, which is generation alpha, everybody born after 2010, our entire consumer base is inside of that. Um, collectors aside, and 2010 is significant because that's when the, the iPad came out and kind of the world changed forever. There's virtually not a three-year-old in the world right now that hasn't experienced or is daily experiencing um, life on, on some sort of digital device and consuming content. Going back to like 20 years ago, 19 years ago, Barbie launching DVD content against against the brand was was a real innovation at the time and and kind of hotly debated as, as to whether it was the right I remember. Thing. Yeah. I mean, it's a big deal. And here we are today, and whether it's you know Thomas and Friends, which is maybe one of the best examples of, of how content and toys interplay. I mean, they're on season 24 on Thomas and Friends, for Pete's sake. Or whether it's Barbie or any other brand in our portfolio, American Girl, where, where you know books and publishing is, is a big part of that content play. And it's expanding, of course, into short-form content and longer form content, as well as an announcement for a movie. It is the reality. To bring back a word that Richard was talking about earlier, it's the tribes, right? I mean, it's... It, it is the the tribe of enthusiasm around a brand and the 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 not just will and interest in engaging in a franchise, but the necessity to perpetuate success around a franchise. It's not just toy anymore. We do have just toys in in some places, but certainly from a Mattel point of view, I think we're going to continue to see growth and expansion and engagement beyond toys into other lines of consumer products into content, into gaming, into live events that really build around the consumer in a way that adds value to their brand experience. That's the strategy that we have. Anybody that's in making toys for kids right now, the ones that are rallying have some something outside of the toy generally that's driving the interest, enthusiasm, engagement, and sustainability of those brands through, through some sort of content. It's critical. Chris Down, Chief Design Officer for Mattel. Thank you so much for spending the time with us and sharing your insights. We certainly appreciate it. We know our listeners will as well. Chris Byrne and Richard Gottlieb, thank you so much for having me today. It is the most fun conversation that I'm having all week, talking with toy experts uh, and uh, certainly getting to know Richard more and reconnecting with you, Chris, has been a, a great, fun time. Talking about toys is always great fun. So thank you so much for having me. This is the Playground Podcast, and we'll be right back. And now we come to the part of the show that we like to call the end cap, where Richard and I toss around some ideas of things that are popping in the toy industry right now. And, oh, my God, what isn't popping in the toy industry right now? There's a lot of variables going into the uh, last part of the year, Richard. Yeah, I, I think we could call this segment, what else could go wrong? <laughs> um, I think there's some things for us to be watching out for as we go into the fourth quarter. Uh, Dr. Fauci made a pretty firm statement that he thinks it's uh, we're really going to have to hunker down in the fourth quarter. I heard that. That's going to have an impact on bricks and mortar shopping. It's going to have an impact on how we play. And so I think we're going to have to keep our eye on that. And then, Chris, it also strikes me that there's a big question of where, whether we're going to have a, a vaccine for coronavirus. And, and that will make a difference. Of course, it's going to make a, dif a difference. It's going to make a difference as to whether or not we travel, how we feel about traveling. Certainly, Toy Fair being postponed, New York Toy Fair being postponed next year. Whether or not we're able to have it mid-year is going to depend on 
having a vaccine. And of course, this is an election year, and that always has a profound impact on the toy industry, even though most of our customers are too young to vote. But it has an impact in terms of when are people talking about toys? When do people go shopping for toys? I think we're not going to have a traditional Halloween this year. So we may see some early sales before Halloween, but I don't think we're going to see an early toy season because we're going to be waiting to see who wins this election. Chris, historically, what happens when there is a national campaign in terms of availability of advertising time? What impact does that have in terms of I'm a toy company, I've got a budget, Am I going to have places to spend it? It's a great question. I think what's going to happen traditionally is you're going to see some heavied up spending, obviously targeting moms and parents in the first part of October. But I think those last two weeks of October and going into Election Day, it's going to be very hard to have any kind of share of voice. And then once the election happens, I think it's going to open up again. But that does mean that we will probably have a somewhat later shopping season as we traditionally have had in a presidential election year, and that's just the way it tends to fall out. Chris, something that I've been tracking for several years now and is that historically when a video game, a new video game console comes out, uh, it has a negative impact on toy sales. I always maintain it's because typically a father decides it's going to be a family toy. Right. And, 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 a, and a, a lot of money that would have gone into physical toys gets channeled into buying not just the console, but the software, the games to play with it. We have this year, Microsoft has announced that they're releasing Xbox in early November, I believe November 5th. Sony's PlayStation is reported to be releasing a new console this year, uh, but they have not given a date. And then Nintendo has said they're producing 25 million uh, Nintendo Switches, and, and that is a product that is continues to be scarce. So I think this could have a negative impact on sales this year. The main Xbox, the new one, is going to be $499. And if some family commits to that, they're going to have to convince the kids that it's a present for the whole family. I think that's the case. And I do think, especially for older kids, when a new console comes out, you see a lot of the money going there. So I think it's going to, it will have an impact inevitably. And I think you're completely right that it becomes a family gift because today's video game players really range in age up into their 40s and 50s. They grew up with these and they have them front and center in the living room, right plugged in just next to their Roku or the DVR. They've got the console plugged in. And then, Chris, I think there's also one final thing, and that's the bah humbug factor. <laughs> what is that? I love that. <laughs> that's going to be this year, more than a long time. If your candidate loses, you are not going to be in a good mood. It concerns me that that can have a negative impact on how joyous people feel and how much they want to uh, celebrate. You know, I never thought of that. I think I think we're going to have to send some ghosts around to visit some people <laughs> if, if, we, if, if we get into that kind of situation. But, you know, it really might suppress spending and not just in toys, but in decorations and food and, and, and yeah. in other areas. I think we're just going to have to wait and see. But I, I did not have the bah humbug factor on my 2020 bingo card. <laughs> well, it's there now, my friend. 
<laughs> well, as we keep saying every week, we're going to have to wait and see, but there's so many things impacting the toy industry. We hope you'll come back and listen as we have more conversations. I'm Chris Byrne with Richard Gottlieb. This is the Playground Podcast. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, Kid Stuff, Public Relations, and The Toy Guy, and we will see you next time. Bye, humbug. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs>